All right, David, welcome to the podcast, my friend. I'm excited to have you on today. David is a urologist and also the founder of Well Prepped and a physician advocate, I would say. David, welcome to the Beyond Medicine podcast. Would love to hear the come up story of David Keynes. I know you're also the founder of Keynes uh, Fried Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> from the from the Twitter bio, it's funny because famous... I saw I saw your Twitter, I saw your Twitter, and you had like your background as Keynes Chicken. And like when I moved to Texas, that was one of the first things I discovered here. So I had a good laugh about that. But that's so funny. Uh, would love to would love to hear the come up story of of David. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Cane's chicken thing is, you know, one of the things that immediately makes me unique is I have five kids. Okay. So I walked past this raising canes sign and I thought, man, I gotta take a picture in front of that thing. Cause that's what that's what we're doing. We're raising canes. Nothing to do with the chicken really, although it's good chicken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was born in South Africa. Much of my family is still in Johannesburg. My family moved when I was very young, still an infant. We moved to Canada, to Toronto. It was fairly straightforward to get a visa to go to Canada in those days. And when I was in second grade, we moved to New York. And from that point on, I spent most of my life in New England. I went to undergrad at Yale and medical school at Cornell. And then I've been practicing in the Boston area for really for my whole, my whole career. There were no doctors in my family at the time I was deciding what I wanted to do. Although now there's a, an anesthesiologist, one of my cousins in South Africa. But, you know, I was a, a typical pre-med student, although I flirted with a bunch of other things. I thought maybe I wanted to go into business. But at that time, I thought I was risk-averse. And as it turns out, I'm less risk-averse than I, than I once thought. But um, the clincher for me was, and I can remember the moment exactly, I was volunteering in the pediatric ER at Yale New Haven Hospital. And I watched this little kid get their thumb laceration sewn up. And the kid was like losing it throughout the whole laceration repair. But when it was all done and there was a Band-Aid on it, he was like four years old, mustered a smile, wiped his tears away and said, thank you to the doctor. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to become a doctor. And now that I reflect on it, you know, it's that moment where you have like a real interaction with another human being and you've impacted them. I think, you know, the doctor listeners to this podcast, probably we all have some kind of common experience where something like that, we thought, wow, that's powerful. I want that. That's how it all happened for me. And, you know, I've heard that from a lot of doctors, sort of like there was a moment or they, they sort of knew they wanted to be a doctor. I'm actually sort of jealous of that because I, I feel like I didn't have that. You didn't have that? I didn't have that. I wish I did. But for me, my uncle was a dentist and he worked in a community center and I just saw like he had a fish thing in his lobby and I was like, that's what I want. <laughs> that was really there you go. <laughs> that was really my story. But I think I liked the, the idea of uh, like running a business even at a young age, but I saw it through being a professional, doing it through being a professional. That's interesting. But of course, there was the moments of, you know, having sports injuries and visiting doctors that inspired me as well. But I often hear from a lot of my friends similar stories to what you just explained, where there was that moment, and like, sometimes I'm like, damn, why did I, why, I wish I had that. But really interesting. So 
you trained in urology and you've been now practicing for a number of years. What's been your experience as a, as a urologist? What are some of the things that you've really enjoyed as a urologist? What are the, some of the things you haven't enjoyed? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reason I became a surgeon, it was very clear to me in medical school, as soon as I did gross anatomy, I was like the person who didn't want to leave the anatomy lab. It was Surgery versus medicine decision was extremely clear-cut for me. And what I have continued to like, I've been practicing since 2008 at a fellowship. I love doing surgery. I don't think it was the only thing that I could have done, you know, in my life. I do feel like it's one of the things that I was supposed to do. I just really enjoy it while I'm doing it. It feels very meaningful when it's happening. And if I think about watching the OR in 1998 versus watching the OR now, it's very similar. Like, you know, sure, there's new technology and stuff, but a lot of other things have changed around, like the clinic environment and the administrative things we have to do are totally different. But surgery, there's a job to be done and no one can bother you when you're doing it. And it means something. And that feels very similar. So that's what I've loved. And, you know, the parts that I haven't loved, to be honest, contributed to my burnout. I was burnt out in around 2015, 2016. And I'll tell you, if I could go back to my medical student self and say something, I would say, listen, you know, you're focusing on getting to a certain endpoint. Think about what it's going to be like to be at the endpoint for 25 to 30 years. You know, I mean, I hope that doesn't sound cynical, but like it's something that we all don't really think much about when we're coming up. Maybe because it's, you know, a painful thought to have, but you do have to think about not just arriving at a destination. You have to think about what it's going to be like at the destination. So, yeah, I mean, what I'm getting at is when I was feeling burnout in 2015, 2016, I identified specifically the things that bothered me was the feeling of repetitive explanations. So let me just give you a concrete example. I do a lot of prostate cancer work. And so, you know, I would explain things like Gleason score and PSA screening and risk stratification for prostate cancer and robotic prostatectomy to the point where I had a very similar explanation from patient to patient. And it was like a, you know, it called a spiel. It's like your, your talk in whatever specialty you're in, you have talks for various things. And I don't know what it is about doctors where we feel obliged to give those from scratch every time organically. I don't know if it's a sense of guilt or obligation or something, but that's the way it's always been done. And it started to bother me because you know, remember we spoke about that human interaction with that four-year-old boy? Yeah. When you're giving a monologue and you've given it a hundred times, you're not in the moment anymore, right? I mean, it detracts from that connection that you're trying to establish with somebody. And so that, that started to bother me. That was really the impetus for, for Well Prepped. You know, thinking 25 years ahead of like, what is your life? look like? What is that? What does your end goal look like? That's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. 
And even even early as a medical student, I remember trying trying to think like that. I still think like that all the time, actually. Like I'm trying to think of like, what's my end goal and how do I work backwards? Do you think you're in the minority? I think I very much am in the minority because I know that my friends aren't thinking this way yet. Maybe Maybe they will. I don't know. I think because they're still starting their careers, I really think we've been fed somewhat of a lie in our training. And I think I realized somewhere along the line that like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. That was what everybody kept telling me. There's a light at the end of that tunnel. And I kept getting to the next step. And I'm like, I don't, I really don't think there's going to be a light. And then once I started talking to more physicians already five years, 10 years, 20 years into practice, I knew there wasn't a light and you had to sort of create your own light. I spent a lot of time in soul searching, trying to figure out how do I create my own light? But I did have to take a few punches to the face because some of the decisions I made, I really had to like figure things out almost all over again. And that was very scary and very, like some people thought stupid. What are you doing? Why are you leaving a career that's safe? And why are you giving up all this money and you've got loans? And so I had to really learn how to block that out for a good chunk of time. And that was like, sometimes it would get to me, to be honest, it really would. But I think over time, I just kind of learned that to get to where I want to be, I just have to accept the consequences, positive and negative of my decisions. And, you know, if they are, if they are positive consequences, then. You know, like I'll, I'll reap those fruits later on in my life, hopefully. I mean, I just want to pull on that thread for a second because create your own light is really, I like how you phrase that. For some people like you, it's entrepreneurship, right? For a lot of doctors and surgeons coming up, the practice of medicine and surgery is the light. But I think what, what I'm trying to say is it may not stay the light as you do it over and over and over and over again. So... For some people, that may be teaching residents. For others, it may be research. Mm -hmm. For other people, it may be getting involved in administrative tasks in the hospital on a, on a leadership level. Yeah. These are things that can keep being, you know, your light mid-career. And I didn't, I had blinders on when it came to this kind of thinking in medical school. It's, it's amazing that you were thinking about it early on, but I wasn't. But I think that, I think for me, that what made me think about it is because I always had that feeling of like, I'm not in, like, I always felt like something was off. Like I didn't have that feeling like you mentioned at a young age where like you knew you wanted to be a doctor. For me, like a lot of it is culturally impacted, like, you know, Middle Eastern backgrounds, like, you know, like you don't have a lot of options. Yep. And I saw it as a pathway to success or meaning or purpose. But I really didn't understand much of what I was getting myself into. And so that's why I had to sort of like think about it, I think, at an earlier stage. But I think that for most physicians, I think there's innate true purpose of why they entered medicine and that true love for practicing medicine that a lot of doctors want to still have. And you know, creating, like, there are multiple ways, I think, to create your own light. And, you know, had I practiced, I probably would have gone into, like, the direct primary care route um, where a lot of these doctors are starting their subscription-based practices, creating a little bit more autonomy into their lives. But even that, that takes a little bit of sacrifice after already so many years of sacrifice. Yeah. And, you know, the 
cost of that is just very high, especially once you're in your thirties and maybe started a family already. So like totally have empathy for that because it's not easy to do. Most people get to take those risks in their early twenties, whereas doctors, like, you know, now you got to take those risks later in life. Like there's opportunity costs there. No question. Yeah. You started to get frustrated with having to do these repetitive teachings at the end of vis visits. And I guess what, what did you come up with at that point? Yeah. So, so think about this. You have a 20 minute visit and you spend 17 minutes of that visit educating the patient on foundational subjects. And then you've got three minutes to say, okay, by the way, here's now how it applies to your situation. And do you have any questions? It's just, it bothered the hell out of me that that was the way to go. So I decided, all right, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network has an incredible PDF. It's a patient guide, it's 80 pages. I put it on my Google Drive, which probably was a copyright infringement. But So I made a short link to it, and I told my secretary, listen, every time a patient is seeing me with prostate cancer, have them please read this PDF. Small thing, right? Not all the patients read it, but the ones that did, their visit was so much better, really for both of us, not just me, but for the patient. It started off with the first three minutes, what questions do you have based on the material that I sent you? And now 17 minutes or more talking about, okay, here's your situation. Here's your prostate MRI. This is what we're going to do. And a lot of time to answer the questions. And I loved it. Okay. Then I took it a step further and I recorded myself on Loom. You know, those Loom videos where your picture's in the corner. Yep. So it was early days of Loom and I had a PowerPoint talk on robotic prostatectomy. I recorded myself explaining it. It was 16 minutes long. It was my best explanation of robotic prostatectomy. I put it on YouTube and I said to my secretary, now, please send him the NCCN guy and the video. And when patients watched that, I mean, it was, it was so much better. And I, I don't want to sound selfish, like the visit has to be good for me. But in a way it does. And it may be taboo to say, but, you know, we got to do this for 30 years in a row. So the cost of a burnt out doctor is substantial. So really, it's okay to say I've had enough of this, you know, the way it used to be. It's okay to say I don't want to repeat these things anymore and I found a better way to do it. Initially, I was wondering if I would get some blowback, like would patients be angry that I wanted them to watch a video instead of hearing the explanation myself? And nobody said that because it opened up time for all these next level discussions that were deeper. It was almost like the patient was having a, a second visit with me. Mm. I think what's important to understand, and you touched, this, uh, touched on this a little bit, is, you know, why is, I think a, a lot of maybe patients or others don't understand is why is it frustrating to have to do, to repetitively do things that are just monologues, right? And I think what a lot of us feel, and we felt this even in residency training, was that we aren't working at the top of our licenses. Like you have this feeling that you've just completed 10 years of school, another seven years of residency, and and you have all of this very specific knowledge, but you're spending a big chunk of your time 
as a very specific expert doing things that almost anybody could do. Yes. And I think that is what really like claws at people, right? It's like, you're like, this is not what I trained to do. Yep. And I think that is also part contributed, contributes a little bit to burnout. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I like, I like the fact that you said we want to work at the top of our license. A different way of saying that, being a doctor is a profession. We want to feel like professionals. That's what we signed up for. And when you do repetitive things and you press play in your head, you, you don't feel like a professional. You feel like a, a robot or something, right? We want to have real connections with other human beings who need our help. We want to make complex decisions and we want to help people. We want the system to help us with the repetitive tasks and all the other members of our team to be working at the top of their licenses to help us be more efficient. And when that system breaks down, we just feel like, God, to hell with this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you think that some patients do want that higher level of like, they want you to explain everything step by step? Is there a mix of, you know, different kinds of experiences? Well, you know, we're about to probably get to talk about what WellPrep looks like, but the listeners are probably getting a sense it has something to do with sending information to the patients beforehand. But let me be clear, it's not a substitute for, it's not so that we don't have to explain things to patients anymore. Right. It's to move some of the foundational topics away from the visit itself, to leave room for more complicated, like next level explanations. Yeah. You know, the ones that are specific to that patient sitting in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So they can get like a high level overview of what the procedure is, what the potential complications might be, what to expect afterwards with post-surgical care, uh, what recovery looks like, et cetera. Exactly. I remember this a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did a lot of this and it does be, you know, it does take a lot of time. And some, honestly, I really think some patients don't want to hear it. Like I remember uh, specifically with uh, post-delivery patients, I think that some patients just don't want to hear it all the time. Yeah. I mean, anytime there's a workflow modification, it's never going to be for everyone. Right. You know, somebody brought this up to me the other day. They said, you know, dragon natural language processing is not for everyone either. Some people still use a keyboard. There isn't a single workflow improvement that is for everyone. So similarly, yeah. some patients don't want this and some doctors wouldn't want this kind of paradigm. Yeah. So how has it helped your career personally? Like, are you using this currently in your practice? Any noticeable changes you feel like it's made in your life or in your practice? Yeah. So let me just backtrack for one second. Sure, yeah. So when the idea sort of popped into my head, the inspiration was companies like Linktree, you know, when people have a Linktree on their Instagram, it's just a simple page of buttons. So I made a prototype for about 10 urology colleagues of mine with patient information curated on these Linktree type pages. And it got incorporated into their workflow and they were like doubling down on it. So at that point, I knew that there was something here. So WellPrep version one is available and it, it exists and people are using it. And the most common things that early users are telling me is a few things. Let's talk about the patient side. Patients frequently come in and the first thing they say is, thank you so much for sending me all that information. I didn't have to Google anything. 
So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. In a basic way, it's a patient satisfier. Yeah. You're taking stress off of them because you've given them vetted information. And the information can be curated in a package and different for every single doctor. Imagine like your favorite video, a podcast, a handout, a brochure, yeah. a link to a support group, stuff like that. So that's what patients say. The doctors using it so far say that it saves time. So whereas they may have a complex new patient visit that used to take 30 to 45 minutes, they may be able to accomplish without it feeling rushed in 15 to 20 minutes. And they say that it feels like a return visit instead of a new visit. The analogy is that we are all teachers. Can you imagine a teacher teaching a class with no homework at all and no curriculum and no, I mean, that, that's sort of what we're asked to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I could totally see how that's helpful for you as a, as a surgeon, especially um, with having so many things to go over. A any other specialties you think this really applies to? Is it only surgical specialties or do you think that, I mean, I could certainly apply this to other specialties that I've. Yeah. I think initially the most logical first specialties to prove this out are the surgical subspecialties or specialized practices where there's a list of 15 or so topics that they frequently see. But I've been approached by primary care doctors as well. In a lot of ways, it even makes more sense on their side because they have so much to cover. They're supposed to have shared decision-making for so many complex topics. Even, you know, think about cancer screenings. How can you have true informed shared decision-making without priming a patient with information to review beforehand? You could imagine a primary care doctor having a page for women in their 40s, women in their 50s, men in their 40s, men in their 50s, a smoking cessation page, diet and exercise, a different page with resources on supplements, all the things that everyone asks about. And if you organize the information once, every patient can get a similar experience. I mean, how is that different than how the things that are already done, like, you know, like the handouts or like the things that are printed out and just handed in person? What's different is, first of all, it's convenient. Nobody needs to, to go find the file cabinet of handouts that have been photocopied 60 times, <laughs> you know. They can live on, in a predictable place on a PDF, on a button on your well prep page, and no one ever needs to go search for them. Yeah, okay. They can be updated in a dashboard without asking for anyone's help. You can just go in a back-end da dashboard and update it. Mm -hmm. But the way I imagine this is to move beyond the idea that handouts are the only way to educate people. You know, podcasts, YouTube videos. What's happening is well-prepped users, in the two weeks after they sign up for well-prep, the doctors themselves are pointing their phones in their faces mm -hmm. and recording selfie videos of them giving their own spiels on these short little topics. Yeah. So it's almost like you're outsourcing the repetitive problem to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting way to put it. This episode is brought to you by Beyond Medicine. 
group that is us. We are a health tech community and we are a community really for all health tech enthusiasts, including physicians, founders, investors, anybody that has anything to do with health tech. If you're not part of Beyond Medicine Group, honestly, you're missing out. Really, we started this group because we wanted to connect our clinical leadership with digital health founders and our founders that are looking for experts, really experts in the field that can help them with building their companies, helping with either feedback or consulting or advising. Uh, this is just really a collaborative community and we're housed on Slack. We do a lot of conversations and job boards and all various types of things that we can all benefit from. So if you're not part of the community, make sure you check it out, beyondmedicinegroup.com. It's $10 a month or $100 for the year. With that, you get access to our member directory, our job boards, you get resources, you get my support, uh, you get our community support. So check it out, beyondmedicinegroup.com. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a great solution, especially with the accessibility of it that you mentioned. I bet a lot of just to transition here a little bit, I think a lot of people as they hear this are curious about how you went on to like start building this, right? Because I think a lot of doctors have in their day-to-day -day come across some kind of a problem and in that process, maybe come up with an idea and thought, I could probably fix this. I bet I have a great idea for it. What do I do with that idea? I think you took a great natural first step which was you built something for 10 of your friends and got feedback on it. Yeah. And you saw, you, you basically essentially tested the market. Yeah. Right. And I think that was a great first step. And then from there, iterated on and improved and, and built on it and, and built a, an MVP, a minimum viable product. Yeah. So let's talk. There's two things to unpack from your question. The first is, how do you identify problems to solve? I have to credit one of my mentors who was very influential to me. He invented a few medical devices that were successfully in the market in urology. And I always wanted to be like him. And for the first 10, 15 years of my practice, I thought that I wanted to invent a device. And his advice to me was, you won't see problems unless you're actively looking for them. So you need to be primed to look for them. His advice was that most people go through their day and they're just trying to get through the day. And then there's other kinds of people who are looking for problems and wondering what can be done better. So I was doing that the whole time and no medical device idea ever came to me. <laughs> okay. But I was still primed to look for problems. Mm -hmm. So when this repetitive explanation problem was really affecting me personally, this was my way of attacking the problem. So that's the first part. The second part of your question is, what do you do when you think you have a good idea? Because your best friends will tell you it's great. <laughs> and, you know, I started listening, believe it or not, to software podcasts. And then I started hearing this concept that you already know so well. Don't go build it until you prove it out no. with some kind of rinky-dink prototype. Mm -hmm. And so... I really took that to heart, you know, made a prototype and had people, you know, then there was the question, you know, the immediate people in my network, I still wondered if they were telling me what they thought I wanted to hear. <laughs> but a couple of them printed their business cards with the QR code of their WellPrep page 
And so that I knew was the signal that was like not trying to please me at all. Like they were really actually doubling down on this workflow change. Yeah. So from there, mm -hmm. I vetted about six or seven different software development agencies and picked one to start developing. You know, at this point, people often say it's great if you have a technical co-founder who can help with coding. I did not have that. So, you know, unfortunately, there is a cost to developing software ideas. Yeah. So you self-funded this to start after you, you know, had proven that there's, there's a need for it. You, you got yeah. that validation. I self-funded to start. And I have to say, like, you know, it was very nerve wracking to do it because the statistics are that most, most software companies, even in health tech fail. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I decided was that even if it failed, or I shouldn't say I decided, I asked myself, would I enjoy the journey even if it failed? And the answer is yes. I love learning new things. This has been like a massive explosion of learning. Mm -hmm. And that by itself is very enjoyable. And the other aspect of this is, and I'm being completely honest with you, if an idea won't leave you alone, you know that you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. This feels really like a purpose. Like I was one of the doctors who was needing help. And so being able to put this out there and help other doctors workflow, mm -hmm. maybe make them a little bit more efficient, relieve some burdens. I think workflow efficiency is one aspect of physician wellness that is perhaps less often talked about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what you said earlier was that it's okay to, you know, some might say you shouldn't spend less time with patients or you shouldn't, like, you should have to go through and explain every single part of the procedure and the recovery. But I think that, like you said, I think that part of it's educating our community that it's okay to prioritize yourself because you have a long career and it depends on you being able to thrive for a very long time. And I think there's a lot, there's like a little bit of martyrism martyrdom, I don't know what the right word is, in our community, like when we have to sacrifice as much as we can at all costs. And I think there's a, there's a different perspective that could be taken in that regard. I think you're absolutely right. It's some combination of martyrdom or just a feeling of obligation. Like I need to generate organic explanations over and over, one at a time for every single patient that I see. And I just think we need to look at other industries, all right? I would like to go into that a little bit because I often wondered, and I think that that process is meaningful for them, but how much is that of that process? Is it like your own ego of like feeling good about yourself that you're explaining something and going through it with the patient? But here's how I would look at it. I would flip it around a little bit. Mm. Let's use a concrete example. Let's say, I, I mean, I'm going to use a urology example because it's most of my world, but let's say um, kidney stones, all right? Patient is coming in, kidney stones, and how productive is it for you to explain what is a kidney stone? Here are the reasons why people get kidney stones. Here are the three main procedures that urologists do for kidney stones. When you're sitting in front of the expert, that is not good for either person, in my opinion. If you can learn all those things at home because the doctor sent you in a very 
nice digital experience, some curated videos, some patient guides, maybe a podcast, you know, really like some good quality content vetted by the doctor. Mm -hmm. And then you spend that time with different explanations. Here's your CAT scan. And this is why we're choosing ureteroscopy. And look at your specific anatomy. And this is what I'm concerned about. And the patient says, what about the stent? I saw that in the video that I'm going to have a stent and I'm a little concerned about that, but they already know what it looks like in their mind's eye. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about the stent and what questions do you have? To me, that's better for the patient and the doctor. I mean, what do yeah. you think about that? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah, because you're providing that education at an earlier stage and they're already a little bit familiar. That makes complete sense. I think, and and I think there's obviously still opportunities where as a physician you would, you know, because you've heard from people before where they're like, the doctor told me if I keep smoking, I'm, I'm going to die. So I stopped smoking. Right. And like in that scenario, like it was, it was possibly the doctor that maybe saved their life. Right. And like with that two minutes that they spent telling them, Hey, look them in the eyes, say, you keep smoking, you keep doing this, you're going to die. Right. And sometimes people need to hear that face to face, right? And maybe no question about it. That's better ROI for the doctors rather than going through the mechanism of, uh, of yeah. actions of how that leads to death. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right, Rami. And and you know, if there are doctors out there who who want to keep their organic, repetitive explanations, you know, this kind of information can be given on the way out of the visit as a way for patients to keep having something to go back and refer to and send to their family and revisit. So it's really flexible. But let me tell you one thing. When I first started telling people, you know, that I was irritated by having to do these repetitive explanations, it sort of felt like taboo. I felt bad about even saying that. Mm -hmm. I want to normalize this conversation as much as I can because I don't think I'm alone in being frustrated and bogged down by that. Yeah. You know what? I think that's one of the things that leads to burnout because there's a lot of virtue signaling in our community. It's too much. Like you don't have to be, you. why, why do we all have to be saints, right? Like we want to do good jobs. We want to do good work. We want to treat patients, but like part of it's like perpetuated by our own community. And I felt bad. Like, you know, I swear to God, I, I had an experience in residency training where I was working with an attending and she asked me, you know, what are my plans after residency? And I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to practice. Uh, I'm going to go into like probably on the business side of things and probably work in startups or something like that. Like this is my second year of residency, I think. And I swear to you, <laughs> she, I saw her like automatically write me off, <laughs> write me off and judge me so hard. And I was like, all right, well, there goes that. There was no more teaching at that point. There was just no more teaching and it was just like loss of respect. I felt it immediately. Okay. And I'm like, all right, well, whatever, you know, and I moved on. But I'm like, I probably shouldn't tell people really what I'm doing because I think in academic settings, when it's like all you do every day, every, like, there's no acceptance for other doing things differently other than the way they see the world or, and, you know, like that really actually taught me a valuable lesson that I probably should keep my mouth shut around certain individuals that I think maybe don't get it. And that's what I did. Wow. And so that, yeah. that led you to not share your goals with other mentors? It led me to other mentors that I 
I think there's certain phenotypes and you can pick up on them. Like some, I think some doctors have the phenotype of like, they get it a little bit more on the innovative business side, big world picture kind of view. And they understand like some doctors don't practice or they go into business or work in venture capital. Like there's other, there's other lanes to go down. And I think that the more... I don't want to say academia because there's doctors in academia that get it too, but there's more academic focused, like clinical, like understand all the studies and teaching. They're in the, their own world and like they don't want to be part of that world. So like I sort of picked up on like what phenotypes there are and what I could share with who. And the real clinically academic focused docs, I felt like I, I probably shouldn't share this with them. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean... At the beginning, we talked about creating your own light. There really is room for all different ways for people to do that. And entrepreneurship is one of them. Yeah. And even if it's not for everyone, there should be a recognition that that path is okay too. Yeah. Well, if we had more entrepreneurs like yourself, we'd probably be in a much better position because we'd, without doctor entrepreneurs, like we leave the business to someone else. And when you leave the business to someone else, you... You end up being just a cog in the wheel. Well, you know, <laughs> in all seriousness, we are in the best position to find the solutions to our own problems. I really do believe that. And I believe that there is a certain feeling among some doctors that someone out there must be looking for solutions for us. And the cavalry is coming, right? Mm -hmm. Cavalry, there's no cavalry, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. You know, we are the ones that need to be coming up with the solutions. Yeah. Doctors come up with the best solutions, by the way. Yeah, I think so. The building is what requires partnership, right? But the yeah. solution, the best combinations are when doctors and entrepreneurs come together and like, because there, nobody understands a problem better. Like doctors, nurses, PTs, OTs, like each, you know, clinical staff has their own set of problems that they can help solve better than anyone else. They're the users. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, if we talk about broadly the topic of physician wellness and burnout, and we think about all the domains that we commonly hear about, you need to get more sleep, you need to have a balanced diet, you need exercise, you need to work on your relationships and your resilience and your work-life balance. I'm not diminishing those. Those are all true. But we also need systems-level help. And doctors have a really good radar for what systems level help is. So, for example, yeah. if I tell a doctor, I'm going to give you a scribe and it's going to help. Most doctors are like, yeah, that probably is going to help me. Yeah. Or if I tell you, I'm going to have one of the EHR specialists come to your clinic for a half day and create as many efficiencies in the EHR as possible, like, you know, speed phrases and buttons and order sets. The doctor would immediately know, like, yes, that's going to help me, okay? 100%. I'm just trying to raise awareness that, you know, this this thing about patient education, which right now is like dusty file cabinets with handouts in them and outdated <laughs> brochures, like, that's another place to look for some help. Yeah. Not only that, the language barrier, too, is also something to think about because there's been so many times... Oh, the bane of my existence when residency was have, bringing an interpreter into the room to explain something or when I was on call having to do that. 
Yeah. But like, if you could easily transcribe some of those things too in a different language, oh man. That's true. You know, having the resources available in multiple languages is, is key. You're right. Yeah. Any big takeaways you'd say now as a practicing physician, also a founder of a company, any words of encouragement you'd give to any doctors out there looking to start something, uh, have an idea that's lingering? Yeah. If you have an idea, and as I said before, the idea won't seem to leave you alone. I've had a lot of terrible ideas in my life and I'm excited about them for like 24 hours and then I, they kind of fizzle out. You know what I mean? If you have an idea and it just won't stop bugging you, you can't stop thinking about it, it's probably worth pursuing. And I, first of all, you need to understand that you can be the one to take that idea to reality. Like any doctor is well-equipped to do that. You don't have to have gone to business school. I never went to business school. I never took Econ 101. You know, you can learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And the second piece of advice I would say is getting started, like the first couple steps is really hard. But after that, there's this momentum that happens and it just keeps going. You know, so just get started, do something. The consistency, yeah. Yeah. Any big mistakes you've made that, or any things that you've done wrong, maybe that you would tell people to avoid? Or any things you've learned that really you would caution others? Yeah, there is one. And I, I sort of avoided it for well-prepped, but only because I made a mistake in another. I was helping my wife. She did 99% of the work, but I helped her a little bit. She started her own practice. She's a nurse practitioner. And she started a medical aesthetics practice. And the, one of the first three things we did was we ordered pens and the logo. Okay, so we had, imagine this giant box with 2,000 pens in it, but no patience, <laughs> but no patience, you know? Yeah. People get into like swag and branding and logo and coffee mug. Don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like get started on the real work of actually doing something. Like that's your first customer. Get your first customer. That stuff feels really good, but it's a complete waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could I can resonate with that for sure. Get your first customer. Good advice. Any other takeaways or big lessons? One thing I would point out is I do think that software solutions in healthcare is not necessarily on a lot of people's radar. I mentioned devices before. I think especially in surgical circles, people are always thinking about inventing a thing, something that you can manufacture. Yeah. But anytime you see people using spreadsheets, anytime you see inefficiencies, those are potential problems for software to solve. So just to be primed to look for those opportunities, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I, I really enjoyed hearing from you. Great to connect with you and great great to have you as part of our community and Beyond Medicine group. I love to have physician innovators in our group and super humbled to have you there. Is there anywhere we can send our audience to learn more about what you're doing at WellPrep, connect with yourself? Yeah, so I'm very easily reachable on Twitter at Canes David, C-A-N-E-S, David. Wellprepped is a deliberate misspelling, W-E-L-L-P-R-E-P-T.com. And you can see it's really easy to connect with me on that website as well. Those are the two best ways. Awesome. David, thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed this episode. Happy to have you back anytime, my friend. 
And thank uh, you, Rami. We'll we'll post some of those links in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.